Joining us now is David Hockfelder, SUNY Albany Associate Professor and Director of the Public History Program. David Hockfelder, whose research interests are in the U.S. history of technology, U.S. urban history, and digital scholarship. Along with historians Ann Fow and Stacy Sewell, he is working on a digital history of urban renewal in New York State called Picturing Urban Renewal. The project has received two planning grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and they are applying for implementation grants. David, welcome to the program. All right. What can you share with us about the the history of your project and where you hope the the outcomes to be? Sure. Um, we started our research around 2015. Um, I and my two colleagues, Ann Fow and Stacy Sewell, um, when we found a cache of photographs at the New York State Archives that documented the Empire State Plaza, the area where the Empire State Plaza is now, uh, the documented the area before demolition. And these photographs were taken by four state photographers who went around and photographed buildings, interiors and exteriors. And two of the four photographers really worked to get people in their homes and places of business into their photographs. So when we, we saw these photographs, we knew right away that we had the opportunity to tell a different kind of history of urban renewal, which is usually told from the, the planners and the policymakers' perspectives, that we had a real opportunity to tell a social history of urban renewal from the people who directly experienced it. Um, then we started a blog called 98 Acres in Albany. Uh, it's on WordPress. If you, if your listeners Google 98, the numbers 98 acres in Albany, you'll get to our WordPress blog. Um, and about three years ago, four years ago, 2018, we decided to expand the focus to include other places in the state of New York, because the same photographs that we found here at the state archives exist in virtually every other place that had federally funded urban renewal projects. Um, I need to clarify one thing, minor thing perhaps. The Empire State Plaza was funded by the state of New York. It was not a federal project. But the way that that project was carried out was very, very similar to federally funded urban renewal. So the same kind of records exist and the same kind of photographic record of residents and streetscapes exist in virtually every other urban renewal project around the state, if not around the country. What are some of the stories of the lives of people and have you been able to follow up on any of the generational histories? Yeah, um, <clears throat> one of the strengths of the records is it does that, that you can get a window into people's lives. So I'm reminded of a family in Newburgh, one of the four places we're looking at for our picture of the renewal website, uh, the Gilbert Sharp family. And um, uh, Mr. Sharp was a, a barber and his shop and his family's home were both in the area that was taken for Newburgh's first urban renewal project in the early 60s. So um, Gilbert Sharp's wife, Sally, wrote several letters to Newburgh city officials, to the State Division of Housing and Community Renewal, and to the federal government, um, complaining about the treatment of her family as well as other African-Americans um, subject to being displaced for this, this particular urban renewal project. 
So those letters are, are neatly typed, um, well-written, well-argued, and really give you a window into the experiences of the Sharp family. Um, Sally Sharp was pregnant and complained to the Urban Renewal Agency that the apartment that they had been relocated into lacked running water in a bathtub, and this was in the summer. Um, so that's one story, is, is kind of how this family lost its residence and place of business. Another um, uh, story involves a woman named Elizabeth Patton, again from Newburgh, who bought her house on contract, which is a highly exploitive um, purchasing practice that uh, African-Americans who could not obtain bank mortgages often would buy their homes on contract. That is, the seller of the home retained the deed and did not turn ownership of the property over until the buyer had made a, um, a certain number of months of consecutive monthly payments. And if the buyer missed a payment, the buyer could be summarily evicted as if it were late rent. So the buyer didn't have a chance to build equity. In any event, um, Mrs. Patton received a visit from the urban renewal officials in the spring of 1962. And they said, you know, we're here to help you relocate. And she said, well, I'm not moving. And she wouldn't let them in and she closed the door on them. And this went on for several more months. Um, the urban renewal officials tried to get her church leaders, you know, ministers from her church and, and lay leaders to convince her to move. Her husband tried to talk her into moving and to no avail. She simply refused to, to budge. Finally, she was ordered evicted, you know, through a court order. And on the day that she left, there's a newspaper story in the uh, Newburgh Evening News about this. On the day that she left, there was a bulldozer waiting outside to tear her building down. And when she left her house, she locked the door, put the key in her pocket book, and an urban renewal official said, you know, we're just going to, you know, you don't need to lock the door. We're just going to tear down the door. And she said something like, I don't care if it's my house. When I leave my house, I always lock the door. So these kinds of stories about displacement, um, perceived mistreatment, perceived slights, um, resistance to these projects, like what Ms. Mrs. Patton had done, refusal to move. These are the kinds of stories that the local records can really bring to light and kind of humanize the, the, um, the way the urban renewal happened around New York State. We have a few minutes left. What were some of the strategic objectives and tactics used by the city and state to pursue this project? I'm not sure exactly what you mean by tactics. So <laughs> I will do what academics love to do, which is I will answer the question I think I heard. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, the way the federal urban will operate the federal government covered two-thirds of the cost, or in smaller cities, three-quarters of the cost, of acquiring properties, um, demolishing the buildings, and relocating tenants and owner-occupiers. So for city officials in the 1960s and 1950s, this was effectively free money. No municipal official was going to turn down millions of dollars in federal money to remake their cities. And this is a period when... Um, the perception was fairly common. Most people in the country believed that urban America was in a state of crisis and that the way to solve this crisis was to eliminate slums and blight by tearing down you know, entire neighborhoods through wholesale clearance of, of blighted neighborhoods. So no municipal official, no elected official was going to turn down this money. Um, so as far as tactics, 
to encourage city officials to start these projects, there really wasn't much in the way of arm twisting that had to happen. As far as the residents, business owners, tenants, owner occupiers of affected areas, they weren't really given any choice uh, in the matter. The city had the power of eminent domain and effectively declared that this neighborhood, these blocks are going to be an urban renewal project. We're going to acquire them. You know, we'll compensate the owners. We'll find attempt to find new apartments for tenants, but there's no stopping the process at that point um, because of eminent domain. So the tactics were basically court orders, if you want to think about it that way. City officials, urban renewal officials, can enforce their will by bringing the power of the judicial system and the police power of the city to bear on people who are reluctant to cooperate. Thank you, David. With a minute left, do you see any uh, critique for public policy practices in the future? That's a good question. Um, I think the profession of urban planning, urban planners today realize that urban renewal, which was the fashion, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, has fallen out of favor and that this kind of wholesale clearance was a mistake. That said, I think the overriding lesson is infrastructure and changes to infrastructure last for generations. So be very humble in your approach to urban planning and city design because the choices we make today will be around with us in our grandchildren's lives at the end of this century. So um, be very humble and circumspect in how you go about um, problems dealing with masses of people and the built environment. David, we thank you so much for being with us and for your, your patience, your research, your scholarship, and your effort. Sure, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much, David. The link to the website, 98acresinalbany.wordpress.com, will take you to the research of David Hochfelder.